This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. As I mentioned, we're going to start in John 7 today. If you're there, say, I'm there, Pastor Jay. All right, that was pretty convincing. We're there. We're going to begin in verse 25 today, okay? 25. And it'll be on the screen for those of you that don't have a Bible. Here's what it says. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Verse 26. And here he is speaking openly, referring to Jesus, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? I want you to underline or highlight the word Christ. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Verse 27, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. 29, I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now I wanna unpack a little bit of what's happening here. Jesus shows up at synagogue being a Jew and a rabbi and a teacher and he begins to teach the people, and begins to do many mighty miracles and works. And people are going, hey, how come all those that are in authority haven't laid claim to him yet? How come uh, they haven't arrested him for the things he said or apprehended him for the things he's done? Could it be that maybe they're onto something? Maybe secretly they know that he is the Christ? Now that word I had you underline because I want to unpack this for us today. The word Christ, as Pastor Jim, who was with us last week, pointed out, is not Jesus' last name, all right? So if you're here today and you didn't know that, congratulations, you got a new fun fact. The Christ is a term, it's a definition, it's a title and description for who Jesus is by way of what he's come to do. It's a Title meaning the anointed one. In the Greek, it's the word Christ. In the Hebrew, it's the word Messiah. Have you guys heard these terms before? I hope so. And it begs the question, if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the anointed one, what is he anointed for? In other words, what is he anointed to do? What's the purpose of it? What is Jesus actually anointed to do? Well, to give you a quick answer, and then we're going to unpack this, he's anointed to fulfill what is written of the Messiah in Isaiah 61. And in order to know what the Bible says about the Messiah in Isaiah 61, we obviously need to turn there. But before we do, let's go to Luke chapter 4, and beginning in verse 14, it says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. This is right after he was tempted in the wilderness. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, which was his hometown where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up in the middle of the chapel. 
and he began to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Where's the place where it was written? Isaiah 61. Let's put it up there. And the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. I want you to highlight that or swipe that or underline that in your Bible. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the Lord's favor or the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus gets up, he stands up in the middle of all these people in his hometown, and he reads from Isaiah 61 here. Then he gives the scroll back to the attendant, and he sits down. Now, this would have been akin to like a rabbinical mic drop. Jesus drops the mic, and here's what it says in verse 20. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were mesmerized by Jesus. They were locked in like many of you are here today. And Jesus began to say to them, today, 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 the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is essentially saying to them, this is why I'm here, you guys. I'm here to fulfill what was written about the Messiah in the scroll. In other words, it's me. I am the anointed one. I am this Messiah, verse 22. And all spoke well of Jesus at this point and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Curiously, at this moment, everyone seems to be okay with what Jesus just said. They even spoke well of him, the text says here, because, and this is my belief, they thought they knew what he meant. They thought they knew what Jesus meant and who he was referring to. This was a text about the Messiah, and it was one that all the people really knew. Like for us, it'd be like John 3.16, right? Everybody at every sporting game, every UFC game, even golf games, holds up a sign, John 3.16. We all know it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It would have been like that familiar to them. And in their familiarity at this moment, they were okay with what Jesus was saying. In fact, they marveled. They were mesmerized by the graciousness of the words that were coming out of his mouth. The problem is they didn't understand what Jesus was actually saying to them because they didn't think as Jews that those words actually applied to people outside of their own community. And to drive the fact home, Jesus is about to really rile them up. How many of you guys know who've been following Jesus for a while that Jesus can, can rile some folks up? Verse 23, and they said of Jesus, is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, now here's where Jesus gets really snarky, and I want you to hear some sarcasm in the voice of Jesus, okay? If you don't know that Jesus is snarky, and he likes to use hyperbole, and he likes to grind gears, well, pay attention, because here's what he says. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you that no prophet is acceptable in his own hometown. Verse 25, but in truth I tell you there were many widows. Now here's where he's gonna really turn up the heat. 
There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. They all knew Elijah. They all respected Elijah. Elijah was one of the major prophets, right? But there were many widows. In other words, there were people among you that you weren't paying attention to, that you weren't caring for. There were many in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of the people but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Now, I want you to underline, or, or you'll notice here that I've highlighted the word, the land of Sidon. We're gonna, we're gonna make sense of this and why this is important. Why does Jesus, at this moment, speak of Sidon? What's the point? Sidon was, for those of you that don't know, a Gentile city, a non-Jewish city, known for its opulence, known for its decadence, known for its wickedness. We, we might call it like the Las Vegas of our day, all right? And, and for those of you that are from Las Vegas, you know what I'm talking about, all right? Because Israel failed in their conquest in the book of Joshua and in the book of Judges, we just went through Joshua, Israel failed to overthrow Sidon and to overthrow their occupation in the promised land. So Sidon's idolatry and all of their pagan practices and their idol worship continues. And it actually becomes a problem for Israel because Israel starts copying the people of Sidon. They start emulating what's going on in the culture rather than being a prophetic witness to the culture. Are you tracking with me? So to a Jewish audience in Jesus's day, Sidon was synonymous with wickedness. It was the place of evil. It was like New Orleans on a party night, all right? This is Sidon, and Jesus is using it to grind their gears. Why would a Jewish Messiah who came to liberate the Jews from Roman occupation and to fulfill the promises that they had had given to them by God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob be interested in a pagan city called Sidon? That's not what Jewish Messiahs are supposed to do. That's not what their expectation of Jesus would have been. Why would he bring that up here? Surely a Jewish Messiah would, would hate Sidon, right? Not so fast. Jesus continues, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed. Here he is, he's turning up the heat again. But only Naaman the Syrian. Now, why does Jesus point out Naaman the Syrian here? What's the reference? Well, if you know your Old Testament, which some of you do, Naaman was the commander of the armies of the king of Syria. And this meant that he was not only a Gentile and a pagan, but also a deadly enemy to the people of God. He stood in the way of the purposes of God for his people. Additionally, we learn in 2 Kings 5 that Naaman comes down with leprosy. So he becomes inflicted with leprosy, which was kind of a death sentence back then. They didn't have cures for it. And because of Naaman's relationship to the king of Syria, he gets this letter to be sent to the king of Israel requesting help, requesting that the king of Israel would do something or pray for him. And the king of Israel is like, why would I do that? He's a Syrian. He's a Gentile. He's a pagan. In fact, he is my enemy. But Elisha, sitting in the king's court, overhears what's going on and he's like, hey king, I'll go. 
Send me to this Gentile pagan commander and let me go to work on him. So the king's like, shoot, be my guest. So Elisha goes and he gives Naaman, an outsider, a pagan, a sinner, a person of wickedness, a prophetic word. I love this. He tells him to go dip in the Jordan seven times. All right, and so the initial response from Naaman's like, the Jordan? The Jordan's like a little stream. Have you heard of the Euphrates? Yeah, we rule that. Have you heard of the Nile? Yeah, the Jordan's nothing in comparison. So he's missed the point. He's looking at the size of the river. He's measuring it. He's thinking about it. But that wasn't the point. The point was that God had a word for him. God had an encounter for Naaman in the waters of the Jordan. So finally, the servant of Naaman's like, dude, just jump in the water, bro. Like, just do it. What are you going to lose? You've got leprosy. Your skin's falling off your bones. Nobody wants to be around you. You're, you're, you're actually about ready to be uh, outcast forever. And so Naaman says, okay. And he does it. And here's the cool part, you guys. He's healed. He's healed. He's healed. Now, Jesus is doing this on purpose. He's using Naaman's story on purpose. Nothing Jesus did is by coincidence or chance. He's not just like rolling the dice. No, he's being very intentional as both the son of God and the son of man, as both a teacher and rabbi and prophet. And he's using these stories that all the people in the synagogue would have known, but probably not liked very much. Probably were a little bothered by, like, man, that bothers me that like Naaman got a pass. That bothers me that like our enemies were healed in the Jordan River. Like that's our river, that's our territory, right? So they're upset and, they're, and so Jesus is using the, the, the uh, land of Sidon and he's using Naaman the Syrian to bring attention to something that he's driving at as the Christ, as the anointed one, as the one that's fulfilling Isaiah 61. And he's pointing out less than subtly, this is the kind of Messiah he is. This is the kind of Christ that Jesus is. It's actually what he's been anointed to do, to heal lepers like Naaman, people they would have despised, to go to Gentile places like Caesarea Philippi at the Mount Bashan. We talked about it last week, the place where Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church right there at the mouth of the cave. This is the kind of Messiahs, and these are the kinds of places that Jesus wants to go, to places of wickedness, to places of darkness, and to do what? To set people free, to bring light to the darkness, and to bring them good news. That's what the series is all about, you guys. It's about the gospel. It's about the good news of what Jesus came to bring to us and now through us. Because Jesus is not just the anointed one for us. He's the anointed one for all. He's the anointed one for all. Not just the people we approve of, look like, think like, act like. Come on. He's the anointed one for Republicans. He's the anointed one for Democrats. He's the anointed one for citizens. He's the anointed one for foreigners. He's the anointed one for all. I hope you catch that today. And here's the truth, this really pissed them off. This really grinded their gears at this point. You know how I know? The very next verse tells me the people's response to what Jesus just said about Naaman and Sidon and all these places. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. They were ticked. 
They were angry. They were ready to throw down. And they rose up and they drove Jesus. They took Jesus out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. This is how angry these people were about what kind of Messiah Jesus claimed to be. But it wasn't Jesus' time, and passing through their midst, he went away. So Jesus slips away. I don't know how he do it. I don't know if he like passed through like, like Phantom Zone did or what, but Jesus gets away because it wasn't his time yet. So they're angry, and they're ready to kill him, but they couldn't. You guys, this is the context for understanding what kind of Christ Jesus is, what kind of Messiah we serve. Jesus is anointed to bring good news. The word is gospel to the poor. Jesus is anointed to bind up, that means heal, the brokenhearted. Jesus is anointed to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus is anointed to proclaim the Lord's favor, his grace, and his justice. Jesus is anointed to comfort those who mourn in Zion. Jesus is anointed to bring forth gladness and praise with the oil of joy and the garment of praise, Isaiah 61, 4 says. And Jesus is anointed to help people flourish in his house. This is what Jesus is anointed to do. And why should it matter to us? Because we, like those in Sidon and in Syria, are those who have heard this good news. And our hearts have been healed and mended of spiritual leprosy. We've tasted this freedom and we've tasted this liberty and we've tasted his favor and his grace and his justice and we've been comforted at times when we needed to be comforted with the oil of joy and gladness and we've put on praise like a garment and we're now planted in his house so that we can flourish. This is what Jesus is anointed for. And if Jesus did it for us, it means that he'll do it for others. And how might he want to do it for others? Here it is. He wants to do it through you. He wants to do it through us. If his spirit lives in us, we are anointed to do what Jesus did. How do I know this? Because if we follow in our Messiah's footsteps, then we get to do what he did. That's actually why the Bible tells us he leaves, so that his spirit could come and so that we could go. John 7, getting back to the the Gospel of John here, verse 32. And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest Jesus. This is later on. And Jesus said, I will be with you just a little bit longer, and then I'm going to go to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you won't find me, because I'm not going to be here. Right? And where I am, you cannot come. Verse 35, but the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? So they were thinking earthly, and Jesus was thinking heavenly. Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? You see, the text here is alluding to why Jesus would later leave the disciples to return to the Father. And here it is. Jesus would go on to say it this way. John 16, verse seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your what? Advantage that I go away. Some of us are like, oh, if Jesus was just here right now, everything would be put to rights and my life would be a whole lot better. Most likely, yes. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus actually said, it's to your advantage that I go. Because if I do not go away, if I don't leave to go back to the Father, I cannot send the helper to come to you. 
But if I go, I will send him, meaning the helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, to you. That's the gift and promise of God to us, that we would receive help, and not just help, not just assistance, but a helper, a ever-present, living presence within us to help us, to anoint us, to do what Jesus did. Jesus leaves so that his spirit can come and rest on a people, that they, too, would be anointed to carry on Jesus' mission to the world. One of the names of the Holy Spirit is the paraclete or the parakletos in Greek. And it's translated often helper, but it, it, sometimes we miss the connotation in the word because it actually means the one who continues the work of. The Holy Spirit is given to us to continue the work of Jesus because it's the Spirit of Jesus at work within us for the world. We are now, and we get to become the very agents through which Jesus is going to carry out Isaiah 61 for those beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, beyond Samaria. What, what, what's the promise? To the ends of the earth, to the very ends of the earth. And here's the cool part. Isaiah 61, verse 4, which we haven't read yet, actually tells us what the result is going to be. Here it is. And they shall build up the ancient ruins, and they shall raise up the former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, and they shall help the devastations or fix or repair the devastations of many generations. Church, who's the they? The they is those in 61 verses 1 through 3 who've heard good news, who were once blind, who were the captives, who needed liberty, who needed freedom, who needed the Lord's favor, who needed the oil of joy. It's them. They're the ones. Now, where have we heard this language before? If you've been with Courageous Church for a little bit or you've been listening online, you'll know that I've been talking a whole lot lately about Isaiah 58. And here's what's cool about Isaiah 58. The same words that we see appear here in 61 are the same words we see appear in 58. Put it up there. Verse 12, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Do you guys see how awesome God is? God takes the very people that he brings good news to. He transforms their hearts so that then they can go out into the world with his anointing, with his spirit to do this, to build up the places of devastation, to raise up the foundations of many generations. Today we just kicked off our Courageous Crew class and I'm so excited for what that means for our young people because this is what God's called us to do, to raise up their generations so that they don't have to tarry and work where we had to tarry and work so they can go further than some of us have been able to go in our lifetime. That's the legacy, and that's what God wants to do through you and through me when we grab a hold of this mandate. So what's the result of the anointing? What's the result of Jesus' spirit coming on us? Well, here it is. We go on to fulfill Isaiah 61 by carrying the mandate of Isaiah 58. Isn't that awesome how God works that way? Now, if you've placed your faith and your hope and your trust in Christ, the anointed one, he wants you to carry this anointing too. He wants you to operate in this, that you would go on to rebuild what was broken, that you would go on to raise up the foundations of many, that you would be a restorer of the streets to dwell in. That's why we have such a passion for this city because we believe we're called to be a restorer of the streets to dwell in. 
It's not their problem. It's not the mayor's problem. It's not people's problem. It's our problem, church. God has given us this city, and it's time for us to arise and shine in it so that we can see this filled, so we can carry on this mandate in the spirit of Isaiah 61. Am I talking to anybody here today who believes that? I hope so. And that's our mandate as a church. The good news is, here's some really good news for you guys. We don't have to do it on our own strength. In fact, if you haven't figured this out yet, you can't. (laughs) You're not strong enough, I'm not strong enough. But we get to do it in the strength of the spirit. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That's what we get to do it in, in the anointing with the help and the anointing of his Holy Spirit. One of our core values at Courageous Church is that we are a spirit-empowered people. What do I mean by that? We're anointed. We carry the anointing of God, the anointing of Christ. We're his anointed ones. Maybe you're here today and all this language of spirit and anointing is new to you. And you might even be listening to this or watching this online and you'd say to me, Pastor Jason, uh, you know, like Jesus I know, but all this kind of talk of the Holy Spirit is uh, totally new to me. Well, guess what? That's, that's great. In fact, you're not alone. Can I encourage you a little bit this morning? In the early church, when Paul was ministering throughout Asia Minor, he encountered disciples in the early church, actually in the city of Ephesus, in uh, what's now modern-day Turkey, who had never even heard of the Holy Spirit. I just want you to consider this. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? In other words, were you anointed when you first believed? And they said, No. In fact, we've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what have you then be baptized? And they said, into John. You guys remember John? John, the prophet out in the wilderness, the guy eating locusts and honey and all the wild, the wild man? They were baptized into his baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. That's awesome. You've repented of your sin. You've changed your mind about the good news of the kingdom that's come to you. And John baptized people with that baptism, telling them to believe in the one who was to come after him, meaning Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. A couple weeks ago, we rolled back this uh, little window here and we baptized Connor before he left for Brazil. That was really cool. And so here they are on the spot. Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus. But then it goes on to include one very peculiar verse. And here it is, verse six. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. This is amazing. Because here are a group of believers that didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. And this is cool to me. I've heard it said this way, that the Holy Spirit fills us for our sake, but he comes upon us for the sake of others. He fills us for our sake. The indwelling and the infilling of the Holy Spirit happens the moment you believe the moment of your confession that Jesus is Lord. In fact, the Bible says you can't even confess Jesus Lord unless the Spirit draws you, unless the Spirit helps make that happen. And so for the disciples, we see a picture of this later with Jesus. Jesus is with them and he's, he's about to go to the Father and he, he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit and they receive it. But then he says, but then I want you to go and I want you to wait for a later time for the Holy Spirit to come upon you so that you can be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. 
So he breathes on them. They believe you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the anointed one. They receive the Holy Spirit, and then they go to Jerusalem, and they're in the upper room weeks later, and they're waiting for the fulfillment of the promise, which was that there was going to be more power, which, which means that there was going to be more strength, which means there was going to be uh, an even greater anointing to come upon them. What? For their sake? So they could feel good? Have warm fuzzies? No, so that they could be witnesses. What's a witness? Somebody who testifies to what they've seen, heard, tasted, and or experienced. So they could be witnesses of Christ. You can't do this on your own strength. I see people that try and they get beat up. But you can do it with the help and the anointing of the Holy One, of the Holy Spirit himself. And that's really the biblical picture of anointing something. In Old Testament times, when they would anoint sheep, they would cover and smother the sheep's head with oil. Have you guys ever seen a picture of this? It's pretty amazing. I went to Israel years ago and I got to see this. The shepherds will take the sheep and they'll just slather oil all over them and, and mostly in the eyes so that flies and gnats can't get in there and lay eggs and cause disease and sickness. There's some really interesting parallels in this, you guys. And we see it throughout the course of the Old Testament when kings would be anointed, the prophet would come and he would pour oil all over them. So the symbol of oil is important. That's why a lot of times when we pray for people, we'll still bring oil. Does oil do anything? No. But it's the symbol, it's the picture of the welcoming of the Holy Spirit and God's presence that God can use in and through our faith. And so this picture of being anointed, it's like when you go and you get that country fried steak and you smother it with gravy. Am I talking to anybody who's getting a little hungry right now? All right, you just, you take, I like to go to Texas Roadhouse and they have that country fried steak and it's got that white country, not the brown gravy, you guys, no, no, no. The white country gravy. Anybody feeling me right now? Okay. And you just cover it and you just smother that sucker until it's drenched. That's what God wants for our lives, church for us to be drenched in the Holy Spirit. The word is baptized. It's fully immersed, not just sprinkled, fully immersed in the Holy Spirit so that our lives are covered and smothered, so that the enemy can't come, the Lord of flies can't come and bring sickness and disease and lay things within our eyesight and affect our spiritual vision. Come on, somebody. That's what the anointing is for. It breaks the yoke of bondage, the scripture says. It sets people free. How do I know it? Because Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and I am anointed to bring people who are in captivity and bondage to addiction and sin and death, to bring them to a place of freedom, to bring them good news. Hey, we're not judging you. We're not against you. We're for you. God loves you. He wants you to be a part of his family. He's given his life and his blood so you can be adopted into this marvelous family. We call it the church. We talked about it last week. But that's just part of the pie. He also wants you to carry that anointing for the world so that your life can be full of him. Paul says in Ephesians 5, to be filled with the spirit. In the Greek, it actually means be filled and go on being filled. It's an active verb. Keep being filled. It's not a one and done thing. So each and every day when we wake up, our hearts cry should be, Lord, fill me today. Fill me, flow through me like a conduit, not a cup. You see, a cup's great, but a cup can be full. And then it starts to spill out. But a conduit, a hose, I was doing some gardening yesterday in my garden and, and water was just flowing through that thing. That's the picture. A conduit, water can flow through it and it can keep flowing through it. That's the picture of our lives with the Holy Spirit, to go on being filled each and every day with the power of his Holy Spirit.
Now, does that mean you'll immediately start praying in tongues? I mean, I don't know, maybe. Does it mean you'll immediately start prophesying? I mean, it's certainly possible. Those are definitely expressions, or we could call them gifts of the Holy Spirit, ones that Paul says, hey, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. Like, I pray in tongues, I prophesy, like, I want you to do that too. Like, desire that. But they're not the only expressions. They're not the only gifts of the Spirit. So keep an open heart, open mind for what God wants to do and how he wants to manifest that in your life. I'll say this, he does it differently in all of us. My wife, the way the Holy Spirit works in her life is very different than the way the Holy Spirit works in mine. We're not carbon copies of each other. And the body of Christ is not meant to be a carbon copy or an echo or an imitation of others. Many of us, we've lost our joy because we're comparing ourselves to other people who have different gifts. And then we're like, why are we so upset? Why are we depressed? Why are we mad? Well, because you were never meant to express the Holy Spirit the way that guy or that gal does. We have uniqueness woven into us. In fact, the Bible says eternity has been set within our hearts. So don't be afraid to express the Holy Spirit through you the way that God wants to do it through you. Amen? But let me encourage you in this. Don't be selectively supernatural. Don't be selectively supernatural. What do I mean by that? I mean, don't pick and choose what is something that you can believe and something that's off limits. Can I tell you this? You put your faith in a risen Messiah that you've never seen. You believed, it took faith to believe that Jesus was a man and God, born of a virgin, that he died, rose again, and ascended to the Father. And yet, when I talk to people who are like freaked out about tongues or prophecy, it's like, wait, you can believe that, but you can't believe this? This is too weird? Don't be selectively supernatural. We serve a supernatural God. And God will express things in ways sometimes that blow our minds. Let's not be a people church that put God in a box. Well, you're only confined to the hour and 15 minutes that we have together on Sundays. Well, you can only be confined to this box. You can only do it this way. Come on, God does things that blow people's minds. Right now, God is revealing himself in the person of Jesus Christ to women in Iran. He's showing up in their rooms. He's, he's birthing a church by the hundreds of thousands right now amongst people that are a part of Muslim nations where the gospel can't get in because they won't allow it. So we put this little box around God and God goes, hey, guess what? Uh, remember when I passed through the walls? Yeah, I could still do that. Remember when I showed up with uh, Paul and knocked him off his horse on the road to Damascus? Yeah, I could still do that. So let's not be selectively supernatural. And I think for some of us who've been walking with God, we get into this place where we're, we're okay with some miracles and we're okay with some healings, we're okay with some expressions. And yeah, I'm not talking about the stuff that's manufactured and fake and phony, you guys. I'm talking about the real thing. And I've experienced the real power and presence of God. Many of you have too. I've seen miracles happen. I've seen blind eyes open. I've seen things healed off people's bodies with my very physical eyes. You can't tell me that God isn't good. You can't tell me that Jesus isn't real. You can't tell me that the Holy Spirit isn't working and operating today because he is. And he's doing it all throughout the world. And USA might have a little problem right now. We might be in our little place and our comfort's been disrupted and we gotta pay more at the gas pump and we're all freaked out about a recession and all this thing. But can I tell you, his spirit is exploding on the earth right now. All over South America, all over Iran, all over China, there are people meeting underground in the hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions. It's estimated there's 2.3 billion Christians in the world. Tell me God isn't up to something. Tell me God isn't working. So let's be a people that embrace faith, that embrace all that he has for us. 
through the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at courageouschurch.com.